Please bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer to ask God's blessing on the public, public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are hungry for Your Word. We are empty and You fill us. We are thirsty for the water of life, the living water that spring up in our hearts to eternal life. Lord, we freely admit that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from Your mouth. You say in Your Word that the grass withers and the flower fades. Surely the peoples are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So Lord, watch over your word now to perform it. Speak, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. I wonder if you have come here this morning perhaps hopeless about some situation or even some sin in your life. Maybe you've been dealing it with it with, for what seems like forever. You hardly remember a time in your life when you were without that situation or that sin hanging over your head, discouraging you. And yet you know you are powerless to change it. Powerless to quit, powerless to do what you know you ought to do and what you are responsible to do. And maybe you come here and you wonder, what must Jesus think of me? If that's you, I want you to look back over your bulletin right now. Look at the titles of the songs that we have just sung. I hope those songs give you fresh reason to hope in Jesus, sinner though you are. And if you turn with me to Acts 9, verse 32, I hope that you will have fresh reason to hope in Jesus from Scripture itself. As we study two miracles that Jesus does through the Apostle Peter. Read along with me silently in your Bibles as I read out loud for us our sermon text for this morning, Acts 9, 32 to 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to, to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with him. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the, window, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with him. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Well, it's been a long time since we saw Peter. We haven't seen Peter since the end of chapter 5. Started to miss him. 
We followed Stephen's ministry and martyrdom in chapter 6 and 7, Philip's ministry in chapter 8, and Saul's conversion and ministry in chapter 9. And now Luke returns to focus on Peter's ministry from here through chapter 12 before moving on to follow Paul's ministry in chapter 13. We left Peter in chapter 5 rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name and teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, both in the temple and from house to house. And so, perhaps now that Saul is no longer ambushing Christians, Peter is itinerating from place to place among them, presumably among the churches throughout Judea just mentioned in summary statement of verse 31. The gospel had spread about 15 miles northwest to Lydda before Peter himself could get there, but Lydda was part of ancient Samaria, technically outside the ancient southern kingdom of Judah. So Peter goes to check it out for himself, see what he can do for them, and sure enough, he finds some saints there, among whom is Aeneas, who's been paralyzed in his bed for the last eight years. Can you imagine being paralyzed? Can you imagine being bedridden for eight years? And all Peter says to him is, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. Literally, make your bed for yourself. Like, I'm not going to do it for you. I just healed Pat and Charlie. <laughs> you get up. Make your own bed. And that's immediately what happens. But that scene looks vaguely familiar to us, if we are familiar with our Bibles at all. It looks a lot like what Jesus did for a different paralytic in Luke 5, 17 to 26. There, Jesus had told the paralytic that his sins were forgiven. Remember, his friends lower him down through a thatched roof to get him through the crowd to see Jesus. Jesus sees their faith and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Which, of course, made the Pharisees apoplectic. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You can't say that. So Jesus proves he can do the thing that they cannot verify, forgive sins, by doing the thing that they can verify, healing that paralytic in Luke 5. And Jesus does it, just like Peter, with a mere word. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them. Same thing here in Acts 9, but now it's Peter. The difference is, Peter does not claim that it's his own power doing it. Peter does not say, I heal you. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. Well, word gets out to the whole city of Lydda. Somehow everyone sees Aeneas walking around. And somehow they became familiar with his story of having been bedridden for eight years. I don't know how the word got out. Maybe it got out as everyone came to Aeneas to see him. Or maybe Aeneas just started walking around to the grocery store, to the farm and fleet, to the try and save literally running errands. Like, hey, I haven't seen you out in a while. You're looking good. You're looking almost too good. How are you looking this good? Wherever they saw him, people all over town realized what Jesus had done for him. And so both Lydda and its twin city, Sharon, experienced a revival. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Jesus, not Peter, Jesus healed Aeneas. And the result was citywide repentance. Maybe not all without exception. Maybe not every single one, but certainly all without distinction. All kinds of people. All sorts of people. All sorts of places. All over Lydda and Sharon are turning to the Lord. So apparently, the risen Lord Jesus is continuing his healing ministry from heaven through Peter. And he's not done yet. Look there in verse 36. Joppa was a coastal town another few miles west of Lydda from Jerusalem, also technically a town in historic Samaria. While Peter was in Lydda, Tabitha had died of an illness among her church friends in Joppa. And since the disciples in Joppa had heard Peter was in Lydda, Maybe because word of Aeneas' healing had spread all the way to Joppa, 
And there's a lot of people becoming Christians in Lydda. Word's getting around. And word of word getting around is probably getting over to Joppa. So the Christians in Joppa sent a couple messengers to see if Peter might do something for Tabitha. And they tell him to hurry, probably meaning that they want him to make it there before the customary three days had passed when they would have had to bury the body. So it's hard to think that they don't want Peter to see if he might work a miracle for Tabitha before they bury her. That may be why they put her in the upper room in the first place. So Peter, still catching up to everything, rather than initiating all the action, he's still trying to catch up to what the Holy Spirit's doing all over the place, to what the risen Lord Jesus is doing. He accompanies the, minis- the messengers to Joppa. He says, well, must be the Lord's will, I'm going to Joppa. He gets there, they take him to the upper room, the widows are standing by the body, showing Peter who Tabitha was and how she had served These widows may have been the beneficiaries of Tabitha's sewing, crocheting ministry, or they may have been partners with her in it. Not sure. Either way, they wept over losing her. She was was hard to lose. She was important to them. Peter puts them all out of the room, kneels to pray, speaks two words to the body. Tabitha arrives. She sits up. He gives her a hand so she can stand up. And he calls the saints and widows in to present Tabitha alive to them. Here again, though, this scene looks eerily familiar. But this time, there are multiple texts coming to our minds. It looks like Elijah going to the upper room and raising the son of the widow from Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. Remember that? Looks like Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke 8 where Jesus puts everyone out of the room, just like Peter does here, comforts mourning women, just like Peter does here, and then tells her, child, arise. Here again, the risen Lord Jesus continues his healing ministry from heaven through Peter, who, like Elijah, is a prophet who has the power to prove his special relationship with the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 42, as in Lydda, so in Joppa, everyone in town hears, and many believed on the Lord. So what are these two miracles doing here? And what are we supposed to do with them? What do you do with that? I mean, are we supposed to imitate Peter and match his faith by healing people of their physical paralysis? Is that the application point? We should have a healing ministry? Should we start a Tabitha ministry for raising people from the dead? Is that how the church applies this? Maybe instead of asking what we're supposed to do with this text, we should ask, what does Jesus want the record of these miracles to do in us? What does Jesus want you to believe? What does he want to accomplish in us as a result of having preserved this record for us to encounter this morning? But even then, does that mean we should make this all about healings for our feelings? Certainly God does care about how we feel. But for the remainder of our time together in God's Word this morning, we'll meditate on seven affirmations from these two miracles. Seven affirmations from these two miracles. But I don't mean affirmations in the kind of positive thinking sort of way. Like, hey, Jesus affirms you and thinks you're great in these seven ways. That's not what we're going to do. Nor by affirmations do I mean, hey, we're going to speak some positive words of hope and joy and thinking that something's going to happen because we just want it to happen and we're going to speak our affirmations out into reality so that they materialize for us and we can be happy about that. That's not what I mean either. I mean 
affirmations about Jesus' identity and power, affirmations about the apostles' authority, affirmations about what it means to become a Christian and live as a follower of Jesus. Seven of those affirmations. The first and most important of which is, Jesus really is risen from the dead. Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Not Peter heals you. Not I heal you. Not Jesus Christ has healed you. Or Jesus Christ will heal you. But Jesus Christ heals you. The present tense of that verb assumes Jesus is alive, well, and powerful to do for us far more than we can ever ask or imagine. Notice, too, Peter does not say, again, I heal you in the name of Jesus or the power of Jesus heals you. He simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus personally heals you presently. And if Jesus had stayed dead, Peter could not have possibly put it that way. He would have had to put it some other way. But because Jesus is alive, Peter can say, Jesus Christ heals you. Now, Jesus did die. The Roman soldiers who stabbed him on the cross made sure of it. And yet, Jesus is not dead. He died, and behold, he is alive forevermore, and he holds the keys to death and the grave. It is to engender personal trust in the historical, crucified, killed, and risen Christ Jesus that Peter says this sentence in that way. And that Luke preserves it that way in the historical account. Jesus Christ heals you. Because Aeneas is in fact healed when Peter says that, Aeneas and everyone else can and should know that Jesus himself is alive and at work. So this is the proof, the miracle preserved in Scripture for you, unbeliever, that you have been waiting for. You want to see a miracle? You hope a miracle will happen? It already happened. This is it. This is one of them. And this is the record of it that has been preserved for you to read right here in Acts 9. So you want to know what Jesus wants you to do with this miracle? You want to know what to do with it? Believe it. Believe it. And he wants you to believe what it says about who Jesus is. Yesterday, today, and forever. He is the living Christ. Jesus is the prophet who both speaks God's word and embodies that very message and logic and explanation of God himself. Jesus is the priest who represents us to God and even sacrifices his own blood to cover the guilt of our sins, to purify the grossness of our sins, and to suffer the wrath of God that we deserved for our sins so that we could be reconciled to the God that we offended by our sins. And Jesus is God's anointed king who rules over us in righteousness and peace, holiness and love. Why then did he rise from the dead? How could he rise from the dead? What does Jesus' resurrection indicate about him? Well, it indicates that God the Father's vindication of Jesus as totally righteous, undeserving death as the penalty of sin because Jesus committed no sin. It indicates God the Father's acceptance of Jesus' death as the substitute penalty we deserved, as the payment that we owed for the debt that our sins incurred against God. It indicates that God made this Jesus Lord and King. It indicates that for all those who trust in Jesus, there is resurrection life starting now by faith in Him, and there is eternal resurrection life waiting for us after we ourselves die. Jesus 
really is risen from the dead. He is in himself the resurrection and the life. He lives forever in heaven, even now, fully God, fully man, overseeing, directing, empowering the salvation of all kinds of people in all kinds of places from all kinds of sins. And he is even healing unbelieving people of their unbelief. Second, Jesus, the second affirmation, Jesus restores his people to show others that he is the risen Christ. He restores his own people in order to show others that he is the risen Christ, to convince them that they might become his people as well. Aeneas and Tabitha were both already Christians. Aeneas was one of the saints who lived at Lydda. Tabitha was one of the disciples of Jesus at Joppa. And in the context of the narrative, Jesus does both of these miracles for his people, not as ends in themselves, but to show others that he is the risen Christ and that they might believe on him as well. To illustrate for them the kind of salvation he's offering them. Now, obviously, both Aeneas and Tabitha would go on to die physically, just like everyone else. So if you game it out, like, well, what, what really was the purpose? I mean, if they're both still dead physically, then why even bother? Well, so that other people would believe, so that other people would turn to the Lord, so that when they die, they would rise again to new and eternal life reconciled to the God that they offended through the blood and righteousness of Jesus. The healing of paralysis and resurrection from the physical dead illustrate what happens to you when Jesus converts you. This is a picture. It's an illustration. It's real. It happened. It's historical. And these historical healings, this historical resurrection, illustrates a spiritual point. Jesus is the one who restores his people. His people do not restore themselves or even help Jesus in his efforts to restore them. Jesus restores them precisely because they are not able to restore themselves. Aeneas was not required to do a single thing in order to be healed of his paralysis. Notice... Peter does not reverse the, sen- the, the order of the sentence. He doesn't say, get up and make your bed and then be healed. He can't do that. He can't make his bed until he is already healed. Jesus Christ heals you without you doing anything. Now that you are healed, now make your bed. All Aeneas had to do was take Peter at his word. Jesus Christ heals you. Stand up. It's the act of faith. Make your bed. Take responsibility for yourself. Be self-sufficient, not from Christ, but in Christ. Make your bed. I'm not treating you like an invalid anymore because you have new life. You have new legs. Making his own bed is both an ability and a responsibility given to him as a result of already having been healed. And of course, Tabitha could do nothing to bring herself to life. She could not even hear Peter's voice unless Jesus had first woken her up. This is what it is like to be without God and without Christ in the world. We were not merely paralyzed, but fully dead in our own trespasses and sins. And God raises us up together with Christ in the heavenly places. And what is the social purpose of these healings? It's not to create a physical healing emporium in Lydda or a resurrection kiosk in Joppa. That doesn't happen. 
Nobody goes to Peter and is like, hey man, I think I've got a good business proposition for you. And Peter doesn't be, isn't like, hey, yeah, that's a really good way to spread the gospel. Let's open up a storefront. Let's keep on doing these things forever. Nope. After all, to multiply miracles forever eventually subtracts from their effect. To normalize physical healings, physical resurrections, would make them mundane, everyday occurrences that we'd eventually become inoculated to. We wouldn't be able to distinguish them from any other humdrum experience. Miracles are miracles precisely because they don't happen every day. But just because they don't happen every day doesn't mean they didn't ever happen. That's what made him special. It is for the purpose of proving that Jesus is risen from the dead to create repentance where there was only sin in Lydda and faith where there was only unbelief in Joppa. That's why those miracles happened there. In Lydda, they turned to the Lord. In Joppa, they believed on the Lord. We'll meditate more on that in a moment, but before we do, we need to see something about the apostles. So recognize, when Jesus heals your heart, when he converts you, he doesn't just do that for you. He does that so other people can see the change in you and so that they will turn to the Lord as a result of seeing the Lord's power and mercy in you. Third affirmation. The New Testament apostles really do represent Jesus' authority, both in their words and their works. The New Testament apostles really do represent Jesus' authority in their words and their works. Peter is exercising the same healing, life-giving power as Jesus did in the Gospels, even as Elijah did in the Old Testament. That's saying something about him. The circumstances of this healing and this resurrection are intentionally similar to other circumstances in the healings and resurrections of Elijah and Jesus to make you identify Peter with them so that you see Peter special like you see Jesus special. Not all the way special like Jesus is uniquely special, but so that you see Peter as a unique representative of Jesus with the other 12 apostles and Jesus' power being delegated to him and used through him. When Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you, and it happens, when he says, Tabitha, arise, and it happens, that says something first and foremost about Jesus. But secondarily, it says something about Peter. What it says is that Jesus gave his own hand-picked apostles, his commissioned ones, his sent ones, the twelve and Paul, a special kind of authority and power for a special kind of ministry of representing and testifying to Jesus' identity, authority, and power as God's chosen Christ. That's what's going on. And look, you can't just be anyone and throw around Jesus' name like this. Not just anybody can say to anybody else, Jesus Christ heals you, and have it actually happen. Ask the sons of Siva in Acts 19, when they try to hijack Jesus' name to perform their own exorcisms. I adjure you, they say, to demons, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And remember what the demons told him there? The evil spirits answered the seven sons of Siva, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. And in maybe one of the most chilling sentences in all of Scripture, the demons say to the seven sons of Siva, but who are you? Uh-oh. And the demons jump them. <laughs> and those seven sons of Siva run away naked. <laughs> 
You're not allowed to use Jesus' name. Not like that. You can't even be just anyone in the book of Acts and use Jesus' name as Peter used it. Jesus Christ heals you. That would not have been effective had the sons of Siva said it. Had they said it, it would have been counterproductive. They might have become the ones who were paralyzed. The New Testament apostles are the ones whom Jesus himself specifically commissioned and authorized to provide the eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection. And the risen Christ himself testified to their verbal testimony with miracles like these two in Acts 9. That is how you know that the documents they wrote and sourced by their own eyewitness testimony are reliable. Jesus testified to their testimony by these miracles. Now look, unbeliever, I'm not sure what more you want in a document that proves that Jesus is the Christ. New Testament scripture is the documentary record of the apostles' testimony to Jesus. This is it. That Jesus commissioned them to write. He told them, I'm, I'm going I'm to guide you into all truth. So these writings really do represent Jesus' authority still today. The writings tell of the works, and the works not simply of the apostles, but of the risen Jesus Christ through the apostles, both before he died and after he rose again from the, from the dead, like Jesus' healing of Aeneas. Jesus. Jesus healed Aeneas. Not Peter. Ask Peter. He'll tell you again. What I said was, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Friend, you believe far more about other historical figures with far less documentary and eyewitness testimony than you have here about Jesus, don't you? You believe more about Caesar and Cicero, Plato and Aristotle, with far fewer historical manuscripts to work with that are far further away from the original document that you think you're reading in your textbook. With zero miracles. But here, in the New Testament, you have a historical document based on literally hundreds of extant historical manuscripts backed by eyewitness testimony, confirmed by miracles, performed through the very men commissioned personally by Jesus himself. Yet the very miracles designed to elicit your faith and arrest your attention are the very things you misuse to discredit the testimony. Because you think they can't happen because they're outside your experience. Well, friend, there's a lot of things that are outside your experience that happen. The apostles are real men, commissioned by the real Jesus to represent the real Jesus, first in their works and then in their writings. Now, if you want to read more about the reliability of the apostles' witness to Jesus, especially in the documents of New Testament Scripture, then read a short little book by F.F. Bruce, called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Fourth, Jesus really is building his church. Jesus really is building his church. As Peter goes around to all the churches, he came down to the saints at Lydda. Now don't glaze over that. How did it come about that there are already saints at Lydda, and Joppa for that matter, for Peter to find them already there? I don't know. Maybe it was Philip. Philip found himself south of Joppa in Azotus and then went north to Caesarea, probably right through Joppa. Regardless, what Peter finds is that Jesus was already at work building his churches in Lydda and Joppa, apparently before Peter ever got there. Time and again, 
what we're discovering in Acts is that the apostles are trying to catch up to what Jesus is already doing. And when Peter does get there, Jesus performs these two miracles to build up his church even more. And friends, Jesus is still building his church today. He's doing it here in Elgin by God's grace among us and other like-minded Christians who are turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus in places that may not even seem that important. But, build, but Jesus is building his church everywhere, and we want you to be a part of that with us. Fifth, becoming a Christian, becoming a Christian really does mean turning away from sin and turning to Jesus in faith. That's what it means. The people in Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. Not word turn is the biblical language of repentance. Samuel said to God's people, 1 Samuel 7, 3, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods from among you. You want to turn to the Lord? You've got to turn away from your other gods. Everything else you trust in and admire and love more than God, you've got to turn away from that towards God and Christ. 1 Kings 8.33, Solomon asked God to hear his people when they have sinned and then turned again to acknowledge God's name. Psalm 22.27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. They're going to repent of their idolatry. Isaiah 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Isaiah 14.1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Joel 2.12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You hear that invitation? Return to the Lord. He is forgiving. He is kind. He is good. Zechariah 1.3, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. And that language continues throughout the New Testament. Luke began his whole two-volume work, remember, with this kind of language in Luke 1, 16 to 17, where John the Baptist would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Jesus anticipated that turn in Peter himself after his denials when Jesus told him in Luke 22, 32, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And isn't that what he's doing right here? Peter preaches it in Acts three nineteen. Repent, therefore... And turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts eleven twenty one. Many of those who believed in Antioch turned to the Lord. And of course, who can forget Paul's preaching at Lystra when the pagans thought he was Zeus in Acts fourteen fifteen. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You can't keep going on approaching God like you were approaching him. Because you have a wrong idea about him. And you're approaching the wrong gods altogether anyway. Turn away from those and turn towards the true God, the living God who created the earth and the sea and all that is in them, including your heart. At the Jerusalem Council, James talks about Gentile converts simply as those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Peter will say to the churches in 1 Peter 2.25, you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Paul will say to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Turn. Repent. Turning to the Lord, then, is what we mean by the word repentance. And that assumes, of course, that the natural posture of the human heart has its back turned on God. You're not seeking Him. You're not turned towards Him naturally. You're turned away from Him. You're going your own way. You're straying. You're running. You're avoiding Him. 
You're ignoring Him. You're rebelling against Him. You're pursuing instead the things of sin, and the world, and self, and ultimately death. So when we call you to repent, we're calling you to turn away from sin, from self, from the world, the flesh, the devil, from everything that you naturally love in your sinful appetites and priorities and rationales, and to turn instead towards trusting, loving, and serving the risen Lord Jesus and waiting for His return in obedience to His word and ways. So repenting is turning around. It's doing a 180, a U-turn in your life, changing the direction of your life, changing what you love and why you love it, changing your priorities, changing the way you naturally use your time and energy and resources, changing what you like to initiate and how you like to respond. That is what we mean by repentance. One fluid motion of a heart turning away from sin and self to God and Christ with His people in the local church. That's what the people of Lydda did, and that is why Jesus healed Aeneas, not just to give Aeneas new legs, but to give the people of Lydda new eternal life as they saw Aeneas's new legs and who gave them to him, and as they turned from their sins to trust in Jesus. But what then does it mean in verse 42 when it says of those in Joppa that many believed in the Lord? Well, all the way through Acts, the risen Jesus himself is referred to as the Lord. Peter said in Acts 2.36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Lord. Not just some vague notion of God, but Jesus, risen from the dead, Lord, Savior, Christ, King, Priest. It's in Him that people believe. But what do they believe about Jesus? They believe that He is Lord, that's certainly true. He's God's eternal Son, sent by the Father Himself to fulfill all God's promises to save His sinful people. Jesus lived the sinless life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died as the penalty for our sins. Jesus endured God's curse for our sins in our place. He was buried, rose again on the third day to prove that God vindicated His righteousness. And He ascended to God's right hand to prove that God accepted His sacrifice for us. We believe that about Jesus. But... To believe in Jesus is not simply to believe something about Jesus. Agreeing with a proposition about Jesus is only the beginning. Believing in Jesus also means trusting in Him personally as the living King of God's kingdom, as the living priest of your soul to represent you to God by His blood and righteousness so that you can have a relationship with God that's reconciled and not marked by wrath. It's trusting that Jesus heals us from the paralysis of our sins, the inability to repent of them on our own. He cleanses us from the pollution of our sins, the dirtiness that we feel because of our sin. He frees us from the guilt of our sins, he releases us from the power of our sins. He pours out His Spirit on us into our hearts to enable us to understand Him, to empower us to obey Him. He covers the shame of our sin. And we trust that He is coming soon to finalize and consummate our salvation, to judge all those who oppose Him, to make all things right and new as an eternal habitat where we will love and serve Jesus and His Father forever. Sixth affirmation. Jesus really is extending his care to the outsider and to the marginalized. Jesus really is extending his care to the outsider and to the marginalized. We noticed some similarities between the raising of Tabitha and Elijah's raising the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. In particular, both healings happen in an upper room. It's curious. Both Elijah and Peter pray to the Lord. Both Elijah and Peter reintroduce the raised person to friends and family, and both end in people believing. But so what? So what? So it's similar. So it looks the same. 
Why does that matter? Well, it matters because Luke's whole two-volume work begins with a reference to Elijah's healing of the widow's son in Luke 4, 25 to 26. That's why we read it earlier in the service. And what Jesus emphasizes about that healing is that Elijah did it for a foreigner, a non-Jew. This is Jesus' first public sermon in a synagogue in Luke 4. He said there were many widows in Israel. There were lots of widows in Israel. There were lots of Israelite widows, Jewish widows. In the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of those Israelite widows, but only to, the, to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside Israel, to a woman who was a widow there. And that's when the Jews shut him down and try to run him out of the synagogue and run him off a cliff. When he talks about God saving Gentiles. Now Joppa was technically still in Israel, but we're at the end of Acts 9, and what comes after Acts 9? Acts 10. The conversion of Cornelius, a Gentile. Tabitha's resurrection then, patterned on Elijah's raising of the Gentile woman's son, is preparing us to see new spiritual life breaking down cultural boundaries and reaching across ethnic lines. And that means Jesus really is extending his care to the outsider and the marginalized. Here in Acts 9, Jesus is about to extend his care to people who were outsiders to God's promises to Israel, Cornelius, full-on Gentile. Joppa was not Jerusalem, not the center of religious influence. It was a backwater a little bit. It was a coastal town, probably a port town. Lydda was not London, wasn't a huge population center. Both cities were on the outskirts, removed from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem and its importance. Joppa and Lydda, insignificant as they seem compared to Jerusalem, are still, though, used as staging grounds, as outposts, as launching pads for the gospel to go out to all the earth. They even see a local revival. Now look, we all know Elgin is not Chicago. It's not D.C. It's not even Barrington or Schaumburg. It's Elgin. But Jesus is extending his care to his people here too, on the edges, on the outskirts. The margins. Elgin can be one of those gospel staging grounds, a gospel outpost, a launching pad for the gospel. And your home can be one of those. Your heart, your heart can be one of those. That's where we end. Seventh and final affirmation. Jesus really can heal and revive your heart. He really can. These two miracles, healing of paralysis and resurrection from the dead, illustrate Jesus' power and willingness to heal not just your body, but your soul. Jesus can make whole all that is broken in your heart. He can still carry away your guilt. He can cleanse your dirtiness. He can cover your shame. He can strengthen your weakness. He can fill all your darkness with his light. And look, you don't have to be important. You don't have to live in a big city. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to live in a trendy zip code. You can live in Lido or Elgin or Carpentersville or Gilbert's or Crystal Lake or DeKalb or Streamwood. He did it for Aeneas and Tabitha. He can do it for you. He knows where you are. He knows where you live. He knows what you feel. He knows what you need. And once he does these things for you, he wants others to believe because of what he did for you and what he enables you to do. Making your bed is just the beginning. Remember what Peter said to Aeneas, get up and make your bed for yourself. Jesus wants you to be self-sufficient, not self-sufficient from him, but self-sufficient in him, because of him, with him. He wants to return us to full functionality as those made in His image. He wants to restore us 
to the mandate that he gave to care for the people and things around us so that we become providers for others and not just consumers and takers and users. And as others see how we take responsibility by the strength Jesus restores to us, we encourage them to take Jesus at his word and act on his encouragements. If you've never done that, today's your day. Turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ. You are the prophet whom God sent into the world. You are the priest who represents us to God and who has sacrificed his own blood in the temple not made with hands and whose sacrifice has torn the curtain into the Holy of Holies from top to bottom. You have given us access to your Father. You have reconciled us to him by the atoning merit of your blood. And therefore, you are the king who deserves to rule and reign over our hearts in righteousness and love. So we pray, reign over us. Rule us in your righteousness. Subdue our hearts. Heal us and raise us up to serve you and to love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. For your glory we pray. Amen.